Well, good morning, everyone. Would you uh, pray with me as we get started here today? Lord, we are so thankful, so thankful for the gift of your word that brings life and the freedom and the opportunity that we have to open it every week, Lord, to, be, uh, to learn, to grow, to, to be convicted by your spirit, encouraged in our faith. We pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our ears to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh... The other, earlier this year, I was taking my daughter to the airport, and on the way back uh, from O'Hare, I saw this billboard by the side of the road. I don't know if it's still there, or if maybe some of you also saw it. It was kind of surprising, right? Not exactly the kind of sign you're expecting to see driving to the airport, or really anywhere for that matter. And it made me wonder, like, why are Muslims putting out messages like this? And what does this reveal about who they think Jesus really is? Well, that answer is actually right here on the billboard. They're pretty open about it, right? They uh, uh, love and appreciate Jesus as someone who affirms the message of monotheism and as a prophet, In other words, whoever paid for this ad doesn't mind affirming Jesus as a teacher, Jesus as a a, a prophet, but certainly nothing more. So obviously a far cry from the Jesus whom we would affirm as the Son of God. But this then raises a follow-up question for us. Who then is Jesus? Is he just a prophet and a teacher, maybe a healer? Or perhaps just a fairy tale, a myth, a legend, a crutch for the weak. Or maybe he's something more. That's not a new question by any means. In fact, people have been wrestling uh, with this for thousands of years. People wrestle with this throughout Jesus' ministry, right? Coming to a head in the events of Passion Week. And today on Palm Sunday, as we look at the account recorded for us in John chapters 11 and 12, we're going to focus in on three particular groups as they wrestled with this question, who is Jesus? So we had the crowds, the chief priests and the Pharisees, and then finally the disciples. And as we look at these three groups, we're also going to look at an important follow-up question that this raises. So what? What difference does Jesus' true identity make to your life as a result? You see, it's one thing for us to affirm Jesus as Lord, but then what? The real question is, does he make an actual difference in the way that you live your life as a result? Does he matter to you? Well, as you consider that question, let's take a look at the first of these three groups of people, the crowds waving the palm branches before Jesus, as we just had acted out for us here this morning with the kids. Now, in some respects, the triumphal entry of Jesus that we read about in John 12 actually begins all the way back in chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. 
Now, Jesus had already performed a number of incredible miracles, but this one with Lazarus was unlike anything else that had happened before. Now, charismatic teachers, they weren't unheard of, and exorcisms and healings were maybe not very common, but not outside the boundaries of belief. But to raise someone from the dead, that was as astonishing then as it would be now. It just didn't happen. Which also meant it wasn't something you could keep under wraps or keep hidden. There's no hiding a miracle of that size and scope. And so word, of course, spread rapidly. So we read in John chapter 11, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what Jesus had done, believed in him. So some of the Jews who had seen the miracle themselves, they actually came to believe in Jesus as a result. Now maybe not in the full sense that we would talk about believing in Jesus today, right? This side of the crucifixion and resurrection and everything that we know. But still, they had some kind of faith in Jesus as being more than just a mere prophet or teacher, I want you to keep in mind this miracle at Bethany because in many respects, the moment when Jesus' ministry makes a decisive turn towards the cross. This miracle precipitates this cascading series of events which cannot later be reversed or undone. It's like the moment when you get on a a roller coaster on a theme park, right? And that big bar comes down over your head and locks you in tight. And then the car starts moving slowly forward, inching up the hill. And it's like click, 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 click. And you realize there's no turning back now. We're at that moment in the gospel As we move down in the text, the next big crowd that is mentioned is in John uh, chapter 11, verse 55. And we read, Now now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the Passover feast drew enormous crowds every year in Jerusalem as faithful Jews gathered from all over the country to worship at the temple. It's hard to get an accurate sense of the the numbers of people involved, but quite possibly hundreds of thousands of people gathering a, a week ahead of time to go through the important purification rites that had to happen before they could celebrate Passover. And the anticipation, it's already building among the people. There's this, this buzz in the air, right? It's like a question swirling a, around Jesus' whereabouts and the likelihood of his appearance in Jerusalem for this important festival. And they're saying, like, like surely he wouldn't come here, would he? Or would he? Maybe? I, I don't know. What about the authorities? What are they going to do? Would he dare to show up here now? The tension, it, it, it's building. That roller coaster is rising up that hill. Now, Jesus, meanwhile, having initially, he, he left Bethany after raising uh, uh, Lazarus and he went out into Ephraim. Uh, and now he's returned to Bethany again for a feast 
that Mary and Martha have put on in honor of Lazarus. And the crowds, of course, they gather again. I mean, there's no keeping this quiet. And this time, not just to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus as well. So many, in fact, that the chief priests determined not only do they now have to get rid of Jesus, but also they have to kill Lazarus now as well. Why? Because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And then we get to the moment we call Palm Sunday, as we read in John chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now there are actually two crowds here. First, we have the crowds of people who are in Jerusalem for the the Passover feast who've been wondering, is Jesus going to actually come? And then they hear of him approaching, and so they, they come out of the city to meet Jesus. Meanwhile, there's also a second crowd, right? The crowd that have gathered around the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus to see Jesus and to see Lazarus, and they've been traveling with Jesus. This is the crowd who we read about later uh, in John. It says they continued, these people continued to bear witness about what they had seen, about this miracle. And so these two crowds, they converge together in this moment, and the numbers swelling, the excitement reaching a fever pitch as the people grab palms and cry, Hosanna, Hosanna. And so, although we often conceive of this moment as sort of a a, a spontaneous event that just sort of happened, I want you to see it's actually the culmination of of a series of events. Not only was the timing carefully orchestrated by Jesus, but the anticipation and the crowds, all of this had been building for quite some time. Initiated by the raising of Lazarus, stoked by the opposition of the chief priests and the Pharisees, who we'll talk about in a moment, intensified by the dinner celebration of Lazarus at the house of Mary and Martha, and now coming to a head as the moment of Passover draws near. We often criticize this crowd for misunderstanding Jesus and quickly turning against him later in the week, but... For myself, after 25 years of following Jesus, this year, as I worked on this passage, I was struck by their energy and their enthusiasm and and their zeal of worship. So easy to lose the the, the passion and, and fervency of a young faith. For my own singing to become lackluster, for my devotion to lack energy, for my service to lack love. And whereas the crowds had only a partial or limited understanding of of who Jesus really was, I have no such excuse. I should be boldly proclaiming every week, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, because he is my king. Right? And he has rescued me, not just once, long ago in the past, but he is the one who continues to rescue me daily. And so who is Jesus? He is our king. He is your king. He is my king. And so it is good for us to worship him as such. Now the second group of people I want to look at today are the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now who did they think that Jesus was? You know, way back when I was in college, before I was a Christian, some friends uh, and I, we, we drove down to Savannah, Georgia. We were at school in Atlanta, so we drove down to Savannah to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. And as we walked around the town, as I said, I was not a Christian at the time, as we walked around the town celebrating St. Patrick's Day, we saw a group of, of Christians there with a cross, a huge cross, like one of these, right in the middle of everything, all the crowds and everything. I mean, friends, they kind of ignored it and wandered off, but something about that irked me. And so I went over to them. I, I don't even really understand why. I think I was mad. Their presence there, it made me feel guilty and ashamed. The cross, it was offensive to me. I remember telling them, you should leave. I remember arguing with them about their foolish beliefs. And looking back now, I also remember their calm and gentle, humble, loving responses to me and my anger in the middle of it all. Now for them, it probably felt like yet another failed evangelistic effort as I wandered away. But for me... I now see it was yet another little stepping stone that the Lord used to move me towards the moment when I would finally embrace Jesus as my Savior. Now, clearly, God in that moment already had a hand on my life in ways I couldn't possibly imagine. But that vehemently angry response which I had was so common throughout Jesus' ministry. It's the same response we see from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Jesus' very existence, it, it offends them to the core. He simply cannot be ignored. And we could look at dozens of passages throughout the Gospels, uh, throughout the Gospel of John, but I want to focus in, in particular, on the weeks and months leading up to Palm Sunday. And like I said, in relation to the crowds, much can be traced back to the moment when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So look in your Bibles at John chapter 11, verses 45 and 46. And although we read that some of the Jews did believe in some sense of the word, some of them went to the Pharisees instead and told them what Jesus had done. And this is not in a sort of go-tell-it-on-the-mountain kind of way. I'm talking more of a, 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 of a, you know, the sibling who is eager to rat you out to your parents so that you get in trouble kind of a way, right? Eager to make sure you get busted. That's the kind of witness that these people are bearing. 
And so they convene the council to discuss the matter, and their specific concern is everyone's going to believe in him, and the Romans, they're going to come, and they're going to take away our place, most likely the temple, and they're going to, to destroy our nation. So who is Jesus to them in this moment? He's a threat, right? both religiously and nationally. And threats need to be dealt with permanently. So Caiaphas, speaking with uh, unintentional irony, convinces the council that it is better that one man, Jesus, die in order to save the entire nation. I say it's ironic because clearly in that moment he didn't understand what he was saying. He was speaking in purely nationalistic terms. But of course we know And John's readers would know that Jesus would indeed die as the perfect sacrifice to save all people. And so, right as the crowds begin to arrive in Jerusalem for Passover, they issue this order that anyone who knows where Jesus is must report him to the authorities. This, then, is what sets the stage for Judas' betrayal. Although... (laughs) stunningly, nobody else takes the bait out of all these crowds of people. But it gets worse because in John 12, verse 1, just six days before the Passover, Mary and Martha, they throw a dinner party for Lazarus in Bethany, and Jesus is there attracting yet more large crowds of Jews. But look down at verses 10 and 11. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. As you know, if you've read the Gospel of John, this is the Gospel of life. Right? In him was life, declares John at the very beginning of his Gospel. John 3.16 promises eternal life for all who would believe in Jesus. Jesus offers living water of eternal life. Those who have his words have life. Jesus implores people to come to him because he possesses life. He is the bread of light, the light of life. He comes to bring us abundant life. And in the final culminating miracle of his public ministry, in raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. That's who Jesus truly is. But for the chief priests and the Pharisees, he only represents death, destruction, opposition. And so now they not only want to have Jesus killed, but now Lazarus also. So how can we be surprised to read of their reaction to the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday? Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Indeed, the whole world. Wasn't that why Jesus came in the first place? While their plans are falling apart, Jesus' plans are finally falling into place. And what we will see this week is the fulfillment then of John's words from chapter 3. The light 
has come into the world and the people, they still love the darkness rather than the light because their works continue to be evil. So how can we then respond? I think of the Christians that I met back in Savannah, back in college, as they patiently and and graciously endured my barrage of ignorant attacks. They did their best to try and share the gospel with me. And when I stormed off, I'm sure, looking back now, they prayed for me. At that moment, for me, Jesus was little more than an irritating rock in my shoe that I couldn't get rid of. But for them, Jesus was the rock who gave them strength to stand firm in their faith in a very hostile environment. And I think about the fact that those faithful few who were convinced their words had fallen on deaf ears, they'll never know until they get to heaven how that hardened young man they bravely, they bravely reached out to in that moment would one day not only bend his knee in, in worship before the cross, but also then become a pastor and lead others to do the same thing also. And so my prayer this week is that we would be equally faithful in sharing the gospel with others, no matter how they respond. And to that end, to help you, I, I placed little tracts, every other seat, they're all around you out there, called Who is Jesus? And I'd like to encourage you to be bold this week and use these as a way to spark a conversation with someone in your family, with a neighbor, somebody at work, somebody that you meet, carry it with you in the car. Invite someone to a Good Friday service here in just a few days' time. Invite them to our Easter Sunday service next Sunday to hear the gospel, to hear the good news. Invite them into your home for a meal because you never know how even a conversation that seemed to be a complete and total waste of time may be used by God to great impact down the road. Take, read, hand them out, Pray for the chief priests and Pharisees of our day to hear and respond to the gospel. So who is Jesus? He is the resurrection. He is the life. Let's share that good news far and wide. Now we talked about the, the two biggest groups present at the triumphal entry, but there is actually a third group present with Jesus at this time, and and they strangely enough get almost no mention at all. And I'm talking, of course, here about the disciples. In fact, they only really get one explicit mention in John's account. Look at verse 16, chapter 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Talking about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I think the best word to describe the disciples is sort of bemused. It's like they just don't get what's going on. Everything Jesus does is confusing to them. Even after three years with him, they still struggle to make sense of who he really is. It's like a thousand days. A long time to spend with someone. 
It's not a temporary job or a summer internship, right? They should have one of those t-shirts that says 24-7, 365. I mean, they are all in. They've given up everything to follow Jesus. But ask them who he is. And we get a whole mixed bag of answers. And I cannot blame them. Much of this was intentionally hidden from them. They, 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 they couldn't make sense of this until after Pentecost. That's John's point here in verse 16. They, they couldn't understand. They wouldn't understand until God sent the Holy Spirit. And so in the weeks and, and days leading up to the triumphal entry, we hear the confusion build in their voices. They know the Pharisees are out to get Jesus. And yet when Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick and he needs to, to go to Bethany, he tell, so he tells them, like, let's go to Judea. <clears throat> to which they understandably respond in confusion. Rabbi, the, the Jews who were just now seeking to sown you, are, and you're going there again? In other words, this makes no sense. Like, shouldn't we be going away from trouble? But after Jesus offers another typically enigmatic teaching to them, we read, so Thomas, called the twin, said this to his fellow disciples. Well, let us also go, that we may die with him. Not exactly a vote of confidence in their leader, who do they think Jesus is? Certainly not someone who can stand up to the forces arrayed against him. Now the next time we hear about the disciples there at the house of Mary and Martha celebrating with Lazarus, dangerously close to Jerusalem, mere days away from the Passover, sharing a meal, enjoying an evening together, and there's this incredibly touching moment where Mary takes this jar of oil and she breaks it open and she anoints Jesus with the contents. Not just any oil, but this extremely expensive bottle of oil, uh, probably imported from India, rare and expensive. And she just pours the whole thing over Jesus. I want to say, I don't know about you, but for me this this whole scene is just way outside my comfort zone. It's just uncomfortably intimate. It's, it's, it's excessive. The oil, the hair, the feet. I mean, it's just too much. This isn't a sprinkling. She doesn't dab a little bit on. The implication is that she empties the entire bottle. And while the disciples are weighing whether or not they should be hiding, Mary is so open in her act of worship. It's astonishing. The aroma, it would have been unavoidable, penetrating not just the entire house, but everyone in it. It would have been inescapable, an alluring scent that would have stayed with them long after the meal was over, lingering on their clothes and in their nostrils reminding them of this extravagant act of worship. It was an act of reverence so over the top that it cannot be missed. A moment which grabs our attention and demands a response. A moment that poses the question, who is this man, really? That you would do such an incredible act for him. 
question the disciples, they, that they're not quite ready to answer. Not fully, at least. And so the next day, the smell of the perfume still covering everyone. We hear of the crowds waving their palm branches and crying out Hosanna as Jesus rides into the city on the donkey. But the disciples, they're strangely silent in this picture. They're not angry like the Pharisees, but they're not clearly filled with adulation like the crowds either. The picture for me is of bemusement, puzzlement, their minds working overtime, trying to make sense of this entire event, kind of like doing a jigsaw puzzle when you don't have the box with the picture on it. That's the disciples trying to put all these pieces together. Who is this man we've been following? Because just when it seems like they've got it figured out, he turns everything upside down again. And so I imagine a sort of a, an excited onlooker stuffing a palm branch into Thomas's hand and him looking down and being like, what is, what is happening here? What am I supposed to do with this? And to be clear, this is not a reflection on their intelligence. That they're not, they're not dense or blind or foolish. At this point, they couldn't see the full picture. Their response, therefore, is, is honest. It's real. But it leaves me with a question for us today. Because I think sometimes we find ourselves in a similar situation. Even though our eyes have been opened to the truth by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we can be left here standing by the side of the road, palm branch, kind of limply hanging in our hands, wondering if we really do know Jesus after all. When things in life don't make sense, the plan we thought we had for us, God had for us, takes us on a dramatically different direction than the way we were expecting. When suffering enters the picture and we find ourselves asking Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you leading us this way? Why aren't you making all this go away? Who is Jesus to us in those moments? Really? How do our actions and our responses reveal what we truly believe about our King? So who is Jesus? He's the good shepherd who leads us and lays down his life for us even when we don't see or understand what is happening around us. And so let's trust him, commit to trust him in those moments as a result. Well, we've looked at the, the crowds the Pharisees and the chief priests, and also the disciples. But as we wrap everything up here, what about Jesus himself? How does he respond to the events of Palm Sunday? As we already noted, not only does Jesus receive Mary's extravagant anointing on the night before the triumphal entry, he affirms her action in the face of Judas's indignant outburst. Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now in that moment, either Jesus is incredibly arrogant 
or he is indeed the Son of God, about to lay down his life as a sacrifice for all. Which is it? Judas chooses the first option, Mary the second. Likewise, the next day, Jesus receives the praise and worship of the people as they hail him as their king, because he is their king. Just maybe not in the way that they imagine or perceive in that moment. So again, either he is merely some political hero who will champion the nationalistic causes of the people, or he is their spiritual savior, their king, who will champion his own primary purpose, which he says is to glorify God. Which is it? Almost everyone at the time will choose the first option. But later, after Pentecost, many of those same people will look back and finally start to see otherwise. But who is Jesus, really? We get the clearest evidence from his choice to ride a donkey into Jerusalem which he does not so much as a symbol of humility, although that's part of it, but as a way of purposefully fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. Known to be a messianic prophecy concerning the coming of a king who would bring both salvation and peace to the people of Israel and to establish his kingdom forever. A prophecy Jesus seems intent on clearly applying to himself, putting the choice firmly in our court, will we then accept Jesus as his word? Will we accept his actions and see in them the fulfillment of prophecy and recognize him as king? And if you have done all that already, then what difference does that make in your life as a result? The question shifts from from who is Jesus to does Jesus matter? Meaning what ongoing daily relevance does he have for your life? How does his identity as Savior and King change the way you approach your job, your marriage, your studies at school, the way you treat your siblings, the way you respond to your parents, the way you spend your time and your money, your goals, your dreams, your identity? Where does forgiveness need to be extended or money reallocated? What hobbies need to be reconsidered? What relationships need to be rekindled? Where is God calling you to move towards others in reconciliation or to serve others in humility? And as we enter Holy Week, May this week be a time of of reflection and repentance, but also a time of renewal and reinvigoration, a time when the Spirit fills you again with new life and leads you into a deeper understanding, both of Jesus' true identity and the role that he wants you to play in his kingdom for his glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are just so humbled 
at your sacrifice for us. Lord, we profess that we can barely begin to understand the depths of your wisdom, the extent of your plans, the enormity of your love, the, 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 the extent that you would go to to rescue us from sin and bring us new life. Lord, we come to you this morning affirming you as King, as Lord and Savior. But we pray also for your help to live as faithful, obedient followers of Christ. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.